Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that escaped convict, Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. Blank is the killer. Well met, and welcome to the third installment of Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast that I decided to make since I'm watching 31 films that I have never seen for the month of October. This week we have seven new ones, and let's just jump right into it. Number one, The Babysitter, 2017, directed by McGee. A dorky 12-year-old kid named Cole still has a babysitter when he's left alone. One night, the kid decides to stay up late to see what the super cool babysitter, B, does once he's asleep. A group of misfits come over, and B kills a nerd boy she lured to the gathering to collect his blood for a satanic ritual. Cole calls the police, then pretends to be asleep as the cult comes into his room and takes some of his blood. Cole is caught awake, and when the cops show up, people start dying. Cole is the sole survivor before B is shown to be alive after the credits. B, Cole, and one of the cult members named Max are the killers. This is a movie that first came out on Netflix. During the first act of the film, I was worried this was going to be another Netflix stinker like the garbage film Little Evil, but once the cult shows up, the movie's enjoyment factor ramps up like crazy. The characters are fun, and the kills are mostly unique and well done. One kill looked like it was going to be a normal fall over the second floor railing death, but instead of the fall killing the guy, he lands on one of those obnoxious pointy glass awards, which goes right through his neck. Another standout kill is the nerd's death. B takes two hunting knives and jams them into the top of his skull to make some nice spouts for blood collection. One character continuously gets blood sprayed in his face, which I thought was a nice gag. Some of the jokes in the film are pretty funny. There's a back and forth about a guy not wearing a shirt that I found humorous. Cole is included as a killer for this one, since I honestly don't think the cult planned on killing him, so him calling the police and blowing up one of the cult members with a firework makes him a killer. If he just would have taken the drug-filled shot of liquor B gave him, only the nerd would have died. Come to think of it, All the deaths but the nerds are all on Cole. He knocked over the dominoes. Cole is shown to have several fears in the movie. He overcomes all of them, which was very wholesome. Needles, girls, spiders, driving, bullies, murder, ain't nothing. Closing notes, McGee is by far the douchiest director's name I've had to say on this show. A lot of the dialogue, especially in the beginning is unbelievable and overwritten. The movie is enjoyable, but nothing amazing. Most of the effects, sans the explosion, are done well enough. That reminds me, the neighbors 
in the film must be down to put up with anything since the cops are only called once by Cole. Give it a chance if you and your friends have been staring at Netflix for too long and can't find something to watch. Number 2, 31, 2016, directed by Rob Zombie. A group of carnies get kidnapped. They are then released into an industrial labyrinth and forced to play 31, a game where the goal is to survive for 12 hours. Psychopaths are then let loose in stages to kill them. Everyone but Sherry Moon and the last psychopath, Doomhead, dies. Sherry wins due to the time running out right as she's about to be killed. Doomhead then follows her and the movie ends. The psychopaths are the killers. I know what you're thinking. A Rob Zombie movie? The horror crowd is incredibly split on how they feel about him. I found House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, and even his Halloween reboot to be pretty enjoyable movies, but I was much younger when I watched them. I'm not sure if I would still have the same opinion today. That being said, Zombie made a movie about a bunch of carnies trapped in a death maze, battling it out with different weird psychopaths a chore to sit through. The psychopaths are all completely uninspired. A little person speaking Spanish dressed up as Hitler, hillbilly clowns with chainsaws, and a big German guy with clown girl doesn't do anything for me. None of them are developed enough to care about. The other psychopath, Doomhead, was kind of interesting because he was given enough scream time to be given some character. The actual look of the character wasn't very interesting. None of the psychopath designs stand out. Most of them just look like grody clowns. Whenever any action happens, the camera shakes around with a ton of cuts. You don't really get to see anything that's happening. None of the kills were interesting, the makeup in the movie is pretty great, and the gore that is shown is fine. The acting was okay. Malcolm McDowell plays a rich dude that appears to have orchestrated the death game. It goes without saying that I recommend not watching this movie. It's a forgettable mess. If you're looking for a movie about people being trapped with psychopaths and trying to survive, I would recommend checking out a 2007 movie called Botched instead. I haven't seen it in years, but remember having a fun time with it. If you want to check out a Rob Zombie movie, just to form your own opinion, I'd recommend House of a Thousand Corpses, which is heavily inspired by The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. If you watch either Botched or House of a Thousand Corpses and hate them, yell at past Josh for the recommendation. That idiot. Number 3, The Love Witch, 2016, directed by Anna Biller. A witch kills multiple men on her journey to find her true love. Elaine, the witch, is the killer. This movie basically shoots to be a 70s witchy melodrama. The movie captures the 70s feel almost perfectly. If I had seen certain scenes before knowing when it was made, I would have totally believed it could be a 70s movie, if the faces weren't so crisp. The set and costume design in this movie is fantastic. Scenes are filled with vibrant colors. Some of the locations are incredible, especially the tea room. Elaine's wardrobe is vast, gorgeous, and striking. The main appeal of this movie is definitely the visuals. The story is ridiculous. The acting is hammy in a good way. Most of the kills aren't graphic at all. The most graphic is a chest stabbing, but even that is done in a way that matches with the 70s vibe using bright red blood and minimalistic gore. 
The movie does drag on quite a bit. It's two hours long, and I feel like it would be greatly improved by cutting 20 minutes. For as long as the movie is, not much happens. Four men die throughout the course of Elaine's love crusade. You get some time with the current coven Elaine is a part of. They seem to be mostly white witches, while Elaine is more towards the black witch side of the spectrum. There is a scene where Elaine makes a witch bottle that's pretty gross. She basically pees in a bottle, puts a used tampon in it, and then finishes it off with some nice greenery. I don't know about you, but that's definitely not something I would want in my home. This movie did somewhat remind me of another horror movie called May, which is kind of like a much creepier version of a girl trying to find true love. Two girls trying to find love with bodies piling up along the way. I'd say give the love witch a watch if you're really individuals, and maybe watch May if you want to see a slow burn creep fest. Number 4, Beyond the Gates, 2016, directed by Jackson Stewart. Gordon comes back to his hometown to help his brother John clear out their father's old VHS store after the dad has been missing for quite some time. Gordon also brings his girlfriend Margot. The brothers find a mysterious VHS tape and upon playing it, realize that it isn't just your normal game. The game has them collect keys to open a gate. Most keys are collected by killing people. Once all the keys are collected, the brothers end up in the gate, where they defeat the evils there and save Margot and their dad's soul. Gordon and John are the killers. This movie has heavy 80s vibes, which I adore. The soundtrack is synth-filled and great. This movie has some crazy kills and practical gore effects. Some highlights being a man getting his intestines pulled out when one of the brothers tears open a voodoo doll, and another man having the top of his head explode when the other brother pulls a key out of the dome of another voodoo-ish doll kind of a bust thing. The gore is surprising, gruesome, and over the top. I felt like the first gore scene came out of nowhere given the tone of the beginning of the movie. My biggest issue with the film was the acting. I did not enjoy the performance of the main character Gordon. He comes off as robotic and made it really hard for me to be sucked into what I was watching. I think replacing that character would be a considerable improvement to the movie. I feel it was almost great. There is also a shopkeeper character whose acting makes Gordon's performance seem Oscar-worthy. I assume they were trying to have the shop character be overly campy, but the performance did not fit with the rest of the film at all. All the scenes with the shopkeeper could have been removed. They only served as a way for John to get a special dagger, which could have been acquired in a different manner. Removal of these unnecessary scenes would have definitely helped the pacing. This movie is a fun watch. It's nothing entirely special, but a nice homage to 80s horror movies. Number 5. Raw, 2016, directed by Julia DeCorno. A vegetarian girl named Justine goes off to vet school where she tastes meat for the first time during an initiation. This sends her into a meat frenzy. After accidentally causing her sister, Alexia, to cut off her finger, Justine snacks on the severed digit and Alexia wakes up and catches her. Alexia then causes a car crash to show Justine 
that she likes the human taste also. More stuff happens. Justine's roommate is killed by Alexia and eaten by the sisters. Alexia is arrested for the murder, and Justine's dad tells her that eating people runs in the family and shows that her mom would eat pieces of his chest. Alexia is the killer. I didn't know much about this movie going in. During my watch, I wasn't able to predict what would happen next. I thought they might be some weird form of vampires or something, but the movie ends with the whole reason for the human munching to be something that runs in the family. The buzz around this movie made me think it would be much more disturbing than it is. Not to say that cannibalism isn't disturbing, it was just shown in a way that didn't really gross me out nearly as much as I thought it would. I think I was more grossed out by Justine grabbing a greasy meat patty with her bare hands and shoving it into her lab coat pocket than anything else in the movie. That might just be because I'm pretty jaded when it comes to gore at the moment because of all these horror movies I've watched this month. The film is beautifully shot and the acting is incredible. There are some amazing shots that were unique and helped instill a sense of dread into me as I watched. For example, there are a few scenes that are shot under the covers of Justine's bed where it's just the viewer and Justine. They made me feel incredibly claustrophobic and isolated. There's a scene where Justine is making out with the boy where she bites his lip that reminded me of a similar scene from the movie May that I brought up when talking about the love witch. During a party sequence, the girl randomly gets her eyeball licked by the boy she's dancing with. This scene in particular made me realize that the film appears to be heavily inspired by the Japanese art movement Uro Guro Nonsensu, which translates to erotic grotesque nonsense. The eyeball scene in particular seemed like a reference to a painting by Suhiro Maruo of a man in uniform licking a schoolgirl's eye. Well, with their face ripped off. Talking about that genre of art could be its own episode. This movie is well done and incredibly entertaining. The end payoff isn't great, but the journey is. Give this a watch if you can handle some cannibalism. Number 6. The Void, 2016. Directed by Stephen Kostansky and Jeremy Jalepsi. Deputy Daniel finds a junkie in bad shape in the middle of the road. Daniel then takes him to the hospital, where a nurse goes crazy, kills a patient, and then is put down by a gunshot from Daniel. The movie then gets crazy when a cult surrounds the hospital and the dead nurse turns into a freakish, Lovecraftian monster. A doctor is killed by the junkie, but is later shown to still be alive somehow. The doctor, who lost his daughter, found a way to get her back using some ancient one-type evil. He turns people into hellish monsters in the basement where part of the group ends up looking for answers. Most of the hospital patrons die. The movie ends with only two people surviving after Daniel tackles the doctor into a portal to another dimension, which causes the gate to close and ends the nightmare. The movie ends with Daniel and his wife, whom Daniel had to mercy kill after she turned into a horrific creature, holding hands in this foreign dimension. The doctor is the killer. Well, I mean, a lot of people are technically killers in this one, but the doctor's action put all the deaths in motion, so I'll pin them on him. This movie has some of the most unique and well-done practical monsters 
I've seen in a long time. The dead nurse beast is grotesque and horrifying, and that monstrosity is only the first creature shown. The basement is also crawling with strange, freakish creatures. If you are a fan of practical monster effects, you need to watch this movie for the fiends it's littered with. The gore is also practically done and amazing. Now that I've gone over how amazing the practical effects are, the rest of the movie isn't that amazing. The acting, for the most part, isn't great. There is a dad that comes to the hospital originally hunting the junkie. The guy who plays him has a different accent every two seconds, and I feel like the guy was completely miscast. Since this is supposed to be the intimidating antagonist in the beginning of the movie, but the guy isn't frightening at all. I actually don't think the acting was the main issue sans that character since the dialogue is pretty atrocious. It just doesn't flow right at all. Whenever people are talking, it sounds completely unnatural. The story is put together just enough to make some sense, but I feel like a tighter story with better dialogue would have made this film so much more. The effects and monsters have so much love poured into them that I wish the rest of the movie was given even half of that passion. This was an Indiegogo, and it raised about $80,000. I haven't found much information about additional funding, so for $80,000, the effects are even more impressive. The Void is another film that premiered in Austin at Fantastic Fest. The directors look like they have had a hand in a ton of blockbusters and made a couple of other movies packed with practical effects with their older production company, Astron 6. One of those movies, Manborg, is in my queue, so I might give it a watch next week. I'd say give this movie a watch if you are a fan of practical effects or Lovecraftian lore. The effects are amazing enough alone to make this an incredibly entertaining film. Number 7, Gerald's Game, 2017, directed by Mike Flanagan. A woman named Jessie goes to a house with her husband Gerald in order to spice things up and work on their marriage. Gerald handcuffs Jessie to a bed, then begins to try and get her into his rape fantasy. Jessie isn't down with it, which causes them to get in an argument, giving Gerald's erectile dysfunction meds enough time to cause a heart attack. He falls on the ground and a pool of blood forms. Jessie then has to figure out how to escape the handcuffs while dealing with a dog eating her husband's corpse hallucinations of Gerald and herself, past trauma caused by her pedophile father, and a creepy man of the night that may be real. She eventually figures out a way to escape after remembering her experiences as a child and uses a glass to cut her wrist and hand up to allow her to slip it out of the handcuff. She then gets the key and unlocks her other arm, has an encounter with the creepy figure, then drives off into a tree getting the attention of some nearby people. She survives and goes on to learn that the man was not imaginary after confronting him at a trial where he is charged with multiple heinous deeds, including murder. Boner pills are the killer. I want to start off by talking about what I would consider the elephant in the room. For the most part, the movie doesn't have a ton of gore. I mean, a dog eats a human body, which is pretty disturbing, but compared to a later scene in this movie, that dog may as well have been eating pizza while wearing sunglasses and a pumpkin patch. The scene in this movie where Jesse smashes a glass and uses a big shard from it to cut open her hand and partially deglove her hand while pulling it through the handcuff 
is the most yeesh-inducing scene I have ever seen in any movie. I, I was literally shocked by this scene. It's visceral, brutal, and terrifying. The effects of the gore are impeccable, which makes the scene even more disgustingly horrific. I've seen a lot of stuff, and this just hit me hard. I, I talked about being desensitized to a lot of this horror movie gore when going over Raw, but this scene is something especially grotesque. I didn't think I'd see anything that would freak me out more than the arm scene in Green Room, but you did it, Gerald's Game. You have won the trophy for most yeesh-inducing scene I have ever watched. The movie is very well shot and put together. The performances are amazing, especially from Carla Giorgino, who plays Jessie, who I just remembered had her hand eaten in Sin City. Someone has it out for Carla's hands. I do have some issues with the character Jessie. I feel there are a ton of better options that she could have tried to escape the handcuffs, but you can say that she was in so much distress and couldn't think clearly after seeing her husband die, then get eaten by a dog. By the way, whoever did the sounds for the dog eating the corpse, I think it could have toned it down. The tearing sounds were kind of ridiculous. Speaking of the dog, he seems to have been having the best day ever. Jesse sees him in the road eating some roadkill. She then leaves out some Kobe beef for him to munch on. But then, to top it all off, he gets to eat an old guy. Best date ever for a dog. I also don't think it was necessary to wrap up whether or not the creepy guy was real, and I think it would have been much more interesting to leave out the whole newspaper stories about him and trial scenes. I am really glad I watched this movie. I was beginning to worry about the quality of Netflix films since Little Evil was a landfill inferno, and The Babysitter was good, but had its flaws. Gerald's Game was fantastic. I highly recommend it, but be aware that this movie does go to some very dark places. If you are squeamish and what I said about the hand scene is turning you off of the movie, I'd say the gore is only a 13 out of 10 in that part. And you can basically close your eyes until you hear Jesse fall on the floor. Mike Flanagan also directed Oculus, which I remember enjoying, and Hush, which I might check out later this month. And that was week three of Blank is the Killer. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any type of feedback, comments, whatever you got, just slam them right in my face any way you can. I'd love to hear from any of you. And again, thank you to Sticker Fridge for hosting this on iTunes. Go check out their podcast. They have Bam Films Movie Club, which is a group of guys sitting around talking about movies. And they also have a podcast called Director's Showdown, where two of the guys go head-to-head, kind of debating about two different directors to see which one is the best. And they're all very insightful and and great podcasts. If you're listening to this, you probably like movies. And hey, their podcasts are about movies. So just search Sticker Fridge in iTunes and you'll be able to check all that out. You can also search Sticker Fridge in YouTube to check out some great video content as well. And that's all we have this week. Join me next week for seven more spooky films on Blank is the Killer.